Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical. So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike. History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust and done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. Well, welcome to History 605. Today on the show, we have an interesting concept and two guests on that are really uh, fascinating. Christina Burke is the curator of Native American art at the Philbrook Museum of Art in Tulsa, Oklahoma. She specializes in Lakota cultural objects, particularly Lakota winter counts. Uh, also on the show with us today is Tipizewin Tolman. Uh, she is a graduate student at the University of Victoria in British Columbia, where she's working on her master's in indigenous language, and she too is specializing in winter counts. The subject came up because I came across the book in a bibliography of a book I was reading uh, about winter counts, and the title of the book is The Year the Stars Fell, Lakota Winter Counts at the Smithsonian. It's published by the University of Nebraska Press, where Christina contributed three of the five chapters in the book. So, Christina and Tipizewin, welcome to History 605. Thank you so much. Thank you. As we've discussed in previous episodes, uh, there's more than one way to understand the past, or more than one way to understand change over time. Uh, we often would think that uh, historians go into archives and look at documents and so forth, but as we've talked about in different episodes, there's a wide variety of ways to gain insight into what's occurred in the past. For instance, in the natural environment, what, what has happened in the past through archaeology and through understanding tree rings and so forth and, and the records that that has left. The subject today is a, a kind of in its own right, um, the way the Lakota recorded their history and how a winter count record uh, became the tradition of many of the tribes of the Lakota and, uh, and a way that uh, the Lakota noted historic events. Christina, I wonder if you could share with us how you became interested in winter counts. Well, thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, I'm actually a, a non-Native curator of Native American art. Um, my background is in museum studies in art and material culture, particularly on the Northern Plains among the Lakota. Um, and I've had the great good fortune to work on the Pine Ridge Reservation and many of the other Lakota communities on the Northern Plains. And uh, my interest in pictographs in general and Lakota, Lakota winter count specifically came about because of uh, my realization of how little I knew about Native American history from indigenous perspectives. And as, a, uh, as an undergraduate student and then as a graduate student, beginning to understand um, the wealth of knowledge that was encoded in these historical pictographs, 
in the oral traditions and later in the textual traditions of Lakota people, stories they told themselves about themselves, about community histories, about individual life stories, about natural phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much more to know than, uh, than beyond what is written by non-Native people about Native histories. So it was, uh, it was in the mid-1990s, I guess, that I first became interested in the subject. Um, and then I, I worked at Red Cloud Indian School on the Pine Ridge Reservation in 1997-98 and um, started working on this project with the Smithsonian about that time. And that's when actually I met Tipi Zewi and her family as well. How does the mechanics of this work? This, in some ways, it marks an event during a year, but how would the Lakota uh, define a year? There's no January to December, right? So what, what's the beginning of the year in the Lakota culture? Um, I believe that it's from one winter to the next winter. And we define our our um, our year by by the winter because um, I, my understanding is how harsh the winter was for our people, and that um, we truly celebrate it when we made it through uh, a Dakota winter. We do have at the South Dakota State um, Museum and the Cultural Heritage Center. We do have two or three of these winter counts. Um, one of them is mentioned in the book, uh, the one by the Lone Dog Count, is uh, the one we have on display in our museum. The part of the, of the book I think that I find compelling is just how the winter count um, on, whether it's on a buffalo hide or some other material, how they were um, acquired generally early in the 20th century or late 19th century and then wound up at the Smithsonian, or uh, in some cases at my at uh, the, the South Dakota Museum, or at the Journey Museum in Rapid City, they have one or two as well. Um, I was wondering, Christina, if you could tell um, the audience a little bit about the people who kind of discovered this art and this way of keeping a history, and how they uh, helped the Smithsonian, um, which was pretty new at the time, really, to um, collect these and keep them and then uh, make them available for us today. Well, in thinking about this this history of Native and non-Native interaction, and in the 1870s, the beginning of the reservation period, which was really a difficult time for Indigenous people, um, but a time when a lot of non-Native folks, whether they were um, government agents in, on reservations, uh, school teachers, physicians, military officers, these kinds of non-Native people uh, might have extended interaction with, with Native communities and with Lakota communities specifically and became interested in all kinds of Lakota arts, beadwork, quill work, mm-hmm. and objects with pictographs on them, including winter counts. And so I think um, for people like Garrick Mallory, um, William Corbusier, who were both military officers, um, they wanted to learn more about Native history and so began collecting these these community histories uh, and sending them to museums back east. So from a from a sort of an academic or museum perspective, mm-hmm. the first examples of these were collected in the late 1880s and, as you say, into the early uh, 1900s. Um, but the histories that are covered on those winter counts 
go back hundreds of years. Right. Um, so it wasn't just recent history. This mm-hmm. is really long-term Lakota history. Right. I think in the book, the, the Batiste Good Winter Count, I think is the earliest one. Um, what, with all of these that, that are known, and, and Christina, you, you keep a database of, of these that, uh, as you find out about them and, and um, kind of track uh, what they tell us, what, is the, what are the things that we can learn from the Lakota from a collection of these winter counts? Well, I can tell you from, from my perspective, but I, I would also love to hear from T.P. Zimwi's perspective sure. um, what she wants us non-Native folks to know about these histories. But for me, um, what is so incredibly rich and important about these historical documents are that they record all kinds of events from natural phenomenon. So the year the stars fell, that term, that mm-hmm. phrase, um, refers to the Leonid meteor shower, Um, in November of 1833. So a really spectacular celestial phenomenon that that was seen across North America that is documented in Lakota winter counts. um, There's also documentation of incredibly cold winters, um, of successful buffalo hunts, Mm -hmm. um, of prairie fires, of all kinds of environmental events. But there are also uh, recordings of cultural events, of intercultural interactions, of battles, of treaty making, of new ceremonies being developed, and of very local histories, the deaths of leaders, for instance, um, and things that would have affected only one community, but not necessarily an entire band or um, the Ocheti Shakoni, you know, um, sort of confederation of indigenous people. Right. And TPC, do you have a Anything to add to that? Or what, as you look at at them, kind of across the number that you that you've run across and so forth, what do you learn um, about the Lakota or the Ocheti Shakui? Um, I really enjoy and love listening to Christina as one of my mentors, and I she summed it up very beautifully. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would like to add that. Um, for myself, as I learned more of my great-grandparents' winter count, I was really strengthened by the resilience of our Lakota people, of our Dakota people, and the fact that we have remained in these and in our homelands for so long. Documentations of like when the first Catholic came, when mm-hmm. Lewis and Clark came, mm-hmm. um, we've seen all of these um, visitors, outsiders coming into our homelands and we were there to document it all and even before then and to know that what that represented and what um, sometimes what was modern was coming but also what was um, damaging for our people in the way that our people were colonized and the things that were detrimental and imposed on our people and despite all of those things, we're still here, and it and we have survived so much. And that's what my great grandparents' winter count, and all of the Lakota and Dakota winter counts has really gifted me, is an understanding of my place in the in the trajectory of the journey of mm-hmm. our people, and that um, we're here for this, you know, this kind of this part on a winter count. Um, 
and the, you know, the journey of the world and the journey of our people and to really utilize our time as well as possible and, and gift to the good of the people and the, the good of the world. And I am so strengthened and in awe of the fact that my great grandparents uh, were document documenting um, these things as they were living through some of the the truest and realest and harshest human tragedies that could happen to a human being. And yet they were still um, full of love and full of humor and full of courage to keep going forward and raise their families and, um, and still, you know, be the record keepers for our people. Mm -hmm. Uh, One thing that really is beautiful to me is that my great grandparents, um, were both born around the 1880s, or excuse me, 1870s, and they were both literate in English and Dakota, and so they had a mm-hmm. key to their winter count, not only just the pictographs, but a written key in um, a little tablet written in pencil and pen, um, in all in the Dakota language. And so I'm just I'm just continually in awe of their strength and their courage and their tenacity and their brilliance and and their gifts they've given to me and my family my children my people um is is endless to me it's like a ripple uh you know when you throw a stone into a pond it just keeps giving and keeps strengthening and keeps growing and um winter counts are just so beautiful and such a gift to our people is there a particular story or incident or something that that uh, you'd like to tell us about the what your great grandparents did and their winter counts? Is there something that comes to mind that you'd like to share? Um, one thing I I guess uh, that is fun for my family to talk about is my dad is the last uh, living tribal member from Standing Rock who remembers when the winter count was still in our community and still in his grandparents' home. Mm. And he always remembers as a child really um, enjoying when visitors would come to um, talk about the winter count. And it was a special occasion when it would be brought out and talked about. And one thing that he said really sticks out is World um, World War II. And my, my grandmother, my great-grandmother at that time was the winter count keeper, and she drew the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Okay. And so my dad said, you know, everything else is kind of pictures of people, and there's animals, there's bears, there's buffalo, there's all of these things that one would really think of as Lakota culture or um, Lakota, you know, just uh, ways of life and and natural parts of, of our stories. But then all of a sudden it's this, um, airplanes, and he said she yeah. drew a like a little Japanese flag, and it was just real on one of the planes. I mean, it was just yeah. this really cool detail drawing that right. um, he really enjoyed. Yeah. Well, and that's the as I would say that you know one of the definitions of history is change over time. So when you see the pictographs changing from something that's natural to something that's man-made, there's a there's a clear historic event there. Uh, that that's that's fascinating. Um, how would you give somebody who sees one in the museum uh, for the first time, maybe they're approaching one, what should they be looking for in order to kind of understand what what's in front of them? How would they 
approach that uh, and, and gain some knowledge from that? Either one of you. I really... Um, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Uh, no, I was going to say, um, just based on um, the, you know, the really beautiful work that Christina has done, I always tend to, when I see a star, uh, stars, then I, you know, I look for that index year. Um, and being from Standing Rock, I always look for Sitting Bull's, um, Sitting Bull's pictograph. Um, there's different things that I will, I will look for, um, you know, when it, when I'm first, when I mm-hmm. see a winter count for the first time. And then I'll, I'm always interested in the first ones. What are they? What is the first pictograph that is starting? And then I also am just personally interested if it starts from the outside going spiraling inward or if it's spiraling from the inside outward. Mm-hmm. And there are some on teepees too. Is that is that something that was kind of done later or is, would, it, would it always, would it have originally started that way? I have seen some on teepees and I... It's, my understanding that that was kind of put on later, but uh, is, is are there winter counts that were originally done on teepees? From from my perspective, I only know of one uh, okay. from Rosebud that no longer exists. There are some mm-hmm. photographs of it um, by a photographer named John Anderson, um, but I I don't think that was a common practice to put mm-hmm. it on teepees. That from my perspective, my limited yeah. knowledge. Yeah. Um, how did, um, uh, maybe in some ways I've already asked this question, but if somebody's going to approach um, deciding what, what uh, would go in for the winter count for that year, that, that event, um, would it be something that marked the year or would it be something unique or would it be something, uh, the most important thing or how would they... Um, how would they go through the process to decide? Would that be a, a community decision or would the, the keeper would be the decider? Or could that change? I suppose it might de- be dependent upon the, the, the community at the time. Yeah, there's too many unknowns to really speculate on how an individual keeper made that decision. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to speculate that my great-grandparents went with their own individual choices uh, of what to include. But they also lived in a really tough time on the the timeline of our people going through the early reservation days. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of death and a lot of death of their own um, friends and family and constituents. And so in that time frame, um, there was, they recorded a lot of the, the deaths of their friends and their family members. Right. Um, is there a is there a uniformity of pictograph that, in other words, uh, almost like a symbology that would stay consistent through uh, from keeper to keeper? In other words, if an arrow was a, meant a certain thing or event or ty- kind of event, would it always mean that? There are some conventions that you see um, that we can see across winter counts, even from specific communities and reservations. But um, I think TPZ, we brought up a great point earlier Mm -hmm. about um, interpretation and and sort of a key. 
um, a, a written key to go with them because sometimes the pictographs themselves are are, are not immediately um, translatable mm-hmm. um, because we're 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 distant in time. Many of us are distant in culture um, and in language, and so it's not always apparent what the original meaning was. And so thinking about these winter count keepers who were literate in their own language and, and who wrote down these explanations of those images is really important. And, you know, one example of that on, on many of the, um, the early winter counts, you see the outline of a human figure with red dots mm. documenting epidemic diseases mm-hmm. like measles, mm-hmm. um, as well as smallpox. And the images might look the same, but when you do have a, a winter count where there is a written key by the winter count keeper, by community members, they distinguish between these two diseases. Um, and I'm, I'm going to butcher the words, but now we chashli and we chachachan. So there were two different words for the two different diseases, but the mm. pictograph might look the same. And so um, having some kind of key or insight and community voice interpreting that image, I think is really important to understanding what was happening in the community at the time. Okay. And prior to uh, uh, the ability to leave a key, how would that, that would just be a verbal um, storytelling about what the meaning of the pictograph might be from the, say the mid 1700s or something? Or when did... That's right. Yeah. So what are the earliest keys about the time of your great-grandparents? Yeah. Yeah, I believe yeah. so. And, uh, you know, with the introduction of, um, of written language and, and right. um, different means means to do that. So um, early Dakota texts from Minnesota area are written in the 1840s, 1850s. It, it, it strikes me it had to have been a conversation with somebody, probably a missionary or something, who was trying to um, create that written language from English in order to understand Dakota or Lakota. Is that, would that be accurate? It or? could possibly be. I mean, I definitely think that, that those connections and that mm-hmm. contact are always catalysts for something. And right. that definitely could be the case. Um, in addition to the fact that uh, my great grandparents were of that generation that were forced into boarding schools. So, they had no choice but to read or write, but they also came from families who were winter count keepers. Mm-hmm. And so they consolidated their, their learned skill set into uh, creating a written key. Yeah. Okay. Do we know how many of these exist? Well, I, I keep finding them, which uh-huh. is pretty exciting. Um, yeah. And I think the last time I looked at my database, it was a little over 200, 204, 207, okay. something like that. Now, in, in some ways, though, that number might be a bit misleading because some of them are exact copies um, and some are interpretations or variants. Um, and so one of the things that I'm trying to do as I continue that research is to um, to correlate them together. What are the individual examples that are related to one another and so are probably from specific communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and as great-grandparents kept more than one winter count, so there are, there are multiple um, right. versions even within a community or within a family. Mm-hmm. Well, 
TPZ, I wonder if you can tell me a little bit about your grad school program, and I'm I'm wondering if maybe this is the in uh, the lead up to a kind of a renaissance of winter counts. If you're if you're um, doing this in your in your work and what your future plans are with with uh, with keeping these. Right. Okay. So I'm at the University of Victoria in British Columbia, and I'm an Indigenous. Um, a student in their Master's in Indigenous Language Revitalization program. And my research is centered on my great-grandparents' key to their winter count, which has remained in the hands of our family. Mm -hmm. Um, With the support of Christina, uh, we were able to locate their winter count and... um, and we were able to visit. It's currently in the Phoenix uh, Herd Museum in Phoenix, Arizona. Wow. Okay. And it, it's been such a journey from um, growing up, knowing I was coming from a winter count keeper family. I didn't really understand what that meant. And now um, being able to really honor their work and continue in it, continue it in a way that is really exciting um, to be at this point in the um, in my life, because when I was a younger person, I didn't understand fully what it meant and really how special my great grandmother was in the fact that she's one of. And I, I'm I'm going to ask Christina this, but I believe that my great grandmother is the only known woman winter count keeper. Is that correct? As far as I know, yes. Hmm. What was your grandmother's name? And her name was Teresa Yellow Lodge, um, was her married name, and her Dakota name was Dopa Krinajiwi, which means she returns four times standing up. And um, there's many ways you can, it can also mean uh, returns four times from like camping, but it also means four times standing up like to defend. Mm-hmm. Um, her own, and so there's all these different ways that that can be interpreted. But right. um, Dopa in Lakota is four, and so that became her nickname. So her name to her grandchildren was Grandma Dopa or Grandma Four. Okay. And and Grandma Dopa, my great grandmother, she raised my father, and um, so it's just a really special time where my father's still alive where we can really capture his lived experience of um, how visitors would come to their home to see their winter count. But when her husband, who was the winter count keeper, uh, Eugene Yellow Lodge, when he passed away in 1929, she became the keeper until her death in 1954. And so from that, that, timeline then she she took on this obligation that was primarily a male obligation but she didn't I don't believe that she looked at it that way I believe she looked at it as what was um, sensible and practical in order to keep the tradition moving forward and in order to continue mm-hmm. their work that they um, you know the husband my great-grandfather did and so she's they're just really special people in in so many ways, and the fact that they had the the written component as their key, which still remains excuse me still remains in our family. 
And what I'm doing in my research project, Mm -hmm. excuse me, is that um, I'm I'm transcribing their written Dakota into uh, phonemic orthography, into Lakota as well as Dakota, and then the translation in English. All of this um, for their particular key has never been done. Um, and then with the corresponding pictograph of theirs, but I've, I'm redrawing their pictograph, um, and I'm actually using um, my iPad yeah. and <laughs> a drawing app with a with a um, eye pencil to do it. Sure, yeah, they're they're incredibly and powerful so, artistic tools. That's great. Yeah, it's it's really exciting. So that's like the foundation of it, and. Where I want to go from there is is endless, and you don't have enough time on your show to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm very curious about the the trek that uh, maybe trek isn't the best word, but but the path that you traveled down metaphorically to find the winter count that your family had made in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, it seems there's there's a provenance of the maker as well as of the item. And you know, curators and museums will talk about the provenance of a of a of a thing, of an artifact, um, to try and understand why it was made, who made it, who the audience was, what what was the, the purpose of it, and so forth. And that's really important to know. But the other thing is the the path that the knowledge travels, which it sounds like you are that keeper of that knowledge. And I'm wondering how these two things were linked back together. Um, so I'm wondering, Christina, it sounds like you had a hand on all that, and maybe there's a way for you to explain kind of how all this started with the, how you two met and then how you brought the the uh, keeper back to their um, winter count. Well, it was, it was one of those um, incredibly serendipitous events. Mm-hmm. So I was working with my colleague Candace Green from the Smithsonian mm-hmm. on this project that became the book, The Year the Stars Fell. Okay. Um, and she and I and another colleague, Russell Thornton uh, from UCLA, um, were doing, doing research and doing presentations about the Smithsonian collections um, in Lakota communities throughout the Dakotas and really sharing knowledge about these collections in D.C. that community members didn't necessarily know about. Most of the winter counts that are in the Smithsonian were collected, again, in the 1870s, 1880s, and so they've been out of Lakota hands for generations. And we were doing presentations about what is in D.C. and talking with community members about how we might make this information available through a book, through website, through... Uh, curriculum materials for teachers. Mm-hmm. So we had given a presentation um, at uh, at the tribal college at Standing Rock, and um, if I recall correctly, uh, TPZ, you and your mom actually had had missed the presentation, but we were still visiting, and you introduced yourselves and started talking about your relatives and the winter count kept by the the Yellow Lodge family, and I had my big three ring binder with me, and I started flipping through the pages because the story sounded familiar to me. And I had a literally a Xerox copy of the winter count that wound up at the Heard Museum in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And I shared that with TPZ Wee and her mother. 
and it got really quiet all of a sudden. And um, and and TPZ, we asked, you know, do you think we could share this with my dad? He's at work, but can we go to his office and share this with him? So I'll I'll let TPZ take the story from there. Okay. I don't know why. <laughs> I got really emotional just kind of as you were reflecting, but I just, you know, it was beautiful. And, um, you know, surely everything happens for a reason because we, um, I was reading our local tribal newspaper and there was this little article and it said that these researchers were coming to Sitting Bull College and they invited any family who had winter counts to to come listen to their presentation and um at the time um no vehicle all these reasons why you know we couldn't make it on time we ended up being late and they were we were super late but they were still in the building visiting and um yes we introduced ourselves and i explained that my great uh my great grandparents had a winter count but our family didn't know what happened to it um, we just know that, you know, my dad has these memories of his grandparents having a winter coat mm-hmm. and I told her their names and yeah, she pulled out her, this big like binder, flipped through it and then says, it's right here. This is it. And it said, um, Teresa Yellow Lodge winter count, Phoenix, Arizona. Wow. And I, I remember just being like, just stunned and blown away. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a really beautiful moment for our family because from then on, um, with Christina's support, we've been able to um, trace its journey, how how it ended up in the herd. Um, and we've been able to visit it first firsthand. And that was such a beautiful trip because I really, we got to see my dad. Um, and he had a physical reaction to seeing it. And he said... I, I guess we never really prepare for something like that, but he couldn't believe that um, something that he grew up with in his home that belonged to his grandparents, um, he said she was very careful with it. It was in a trunk underneath her bed, and we could never touch it. We could never play with it. It was really just kind of off limits. Mm-hmm. And he said to to know that this, this sacred belonging of my grandmother's um, – ended up from my grandma's, you know, underneath my grandma's bed to this museum in Phoenix, he was really blown away. Um, But he also said seeing it really jogged a lot of memories for him from when he was little and people would come visit and there was certain like pictographs and memories and of people coming to to reminisce and talk about certain events on the winter count. So it just, it was such a beautiful um, experience and truly um, life-changing, life-changing. I can so, imagine. Um, been, yeah, so it's it's definitely one of my favorite stories to think about. Yes, yeah, so what would Teresa Yellow Lodge think of all this, that her work uh, keeping that is now in a museum where thousands every year can appreciate it? Well, I, I believe it's in their collections, and I don't think it's ever been on display. Oh, and I'm okay. not sure that it ever will be. Okay. So the fact that Christina knew about it is actually very special as well. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, and, and I'd like to just give a shout out to my colleague, Diana Pardue, 
curator at the Heard Museum mm-hmm. who helped facilitate this visit on, on that end. Um, yeah. And she and the staff at the Heard were incredibly accommodating and welcoming and mm-hmm. um, brought the winter count into, a, yeah, I think, one of their conference rooms so that, as I recall, it was three generations of your family, Tipizimui, who came for that visit and were able to mm-hmm. see that by themselves, you know, not just down in storage, but mm-hmm. in a well-lit room and, and share some stories and take photographs and, and document that for the future generations as well. Would that be a thing that winds up in one of your winter counts, TBCV? Oh, yes. That will go on. Um, that will be on 2005. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, very good. Well, very good. Well, it's been a pleasure to speak to both of you, and um, uh, we certainly hope that the work continues, and I'm eager to see uh, what will become of your work in the future, TBZV, as well as uh, Christina's work cataloging all this. I think it, uh, for the two of you, it will lead, as, as uh, the movie line says, to a, a, a beautiful friendship of uh, professional collaboration and uh uh, in which many of us would be enriched by. So best of luck to both of you. Thank you. Opida. Opida. Thank you so much. You're welcome. We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history. We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to find podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.